Welcome to Interviews on the Edge, a podcast from Church on the Edge. This is your host, Dan Armistead, and I invite you to join me as we hear the stories and share the lives of ordinary people from around the world, people just like you and me, the people who are following Jesus on the edge. Today we're going to be talking with a very special family living in Nepal. The Parvez family, husband George and wife Alfreda, along with their son Abby, are originally from Karachi, Pakistan. But for the last, well, going on eight years now, they've been refugees in places like Thailand and South Korea, and of course, now living in Nepal. Now, I had the privilege of of serving as a pastor of this wonderful family. They attended our church when I was serving in Seoul, and and there my wife, Sherry, and I were blessed to get to know them. We we enjoyed some of Alfreda's excellent Pakistani cooking in their home, and we've had the privilege of watching Abi grow up and, and become the tall, handsome young man that he is today. And like I continue to do with so many that we met in Korea and really from all over the world, I have continued to meet, keep up with this very special family. I want to share a verse of scripture with you today as we get started from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. And it tells us that you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And in verse 26, we read that if one member suffers in that body, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so with those verses in mind, I'm going to be talking today mostly with Abby as he tells the story of his family fleeing Pakistan and the struggles they faced over these last many years. But I'm also going to be talking with someone else. Susie Cleaver has been on a mission now to help this family to safely uh, move to Canada, her, her home country. And there they can find a place to settle. Abby can begin a future as a young man, building his life. And, and Susie and her husband, Rick, have been a vital part of this. Again, they've been working for many, many years. I should tell you a little bit about Susie and Rick. Uh, Both of them I met also in Korea. Uh, They taught in an English-speaking school. Rick was the chaplain there. Susie worked in drama and theater. And they also faithfully attended our 3 p.m. service at Seoul International Baptist Church, which, by the way, is now known as Freedom Village Church. And I want to say as a former pastor, I think the name change is fantastic. Because you see, the church is located in an area of Seoul known as Hebongchong. It was settled by North Koreans after the war, and Hebongchong literally means freedom village. And I think that serves as the perfect metaphor, the perfect picture for the Parvez family, because they're seeking to find freedom and security in a permanent home in Canada. And so I want to welcome Susie and I want to welcome Abby today. Thanks to the two of you for joining me. Abby is online from uh, Nepal. Susie is in Alberta, Canada. 
And again, guys, I want to thank both of you so much for joining me today. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Abby, you there? Yes. Okay. Well, as we as we get started, I think it's really important for our listeners today, Abby, to hear your story and the story of your family. So, so Abby, I'm going to start with you and uh and let me let me just begin simply by asking, how old are you now today? I'm 19 years old today. I'm going to turn 20 this year. Okay. And when did you guys leave uh, Pakistan? What, seven, eight years ago now? When we left Pakistan, I was 12 years old. 12 years old. All right. Well, I think it's important to ask you this question. So tell us a little bit about why you left Pakistan. What happened that caused your family to leave your home country? Tell us about that. Well, we were we were living there. My mom and dad had a good life and we had our house. We had our small business. They they saved money from when they used to live in different countries. They got married in England. They lived. My dad has a small business in Dubai. And when they moved back to Pakistan, they built a house there. And and after building a house there after 11 years, um, when he was finally he rebuilt it like the house, better looking house and the Malvi, which is called Imam, which is like a, uh, like a Muslim leader from a mosque, liked the house. And he wanted to take our house by saying, donating the house to Islamic Madrasa, which is Islamic school. And when my father denied and got upset, he got very upset. He started shouting. He started, you know, ranting about stuff. And, and the next day he brought, he went in by force in our house. As I remember, they, they beat us up. Uh, I was away. I was hiding. I can hear. And then when my dad went to police, after all this drama, they, there was a mob just because he accused us of saying blasphemy against Muhammad and Allah, which is in Pakistan Sharia law, which you can't say any blasphemy against it. So if you end up saying it, before even you go to a court and everything, the public will kill you because of their mindset. Islam is spread on the point of a sword. Saying all this thing, he got everybody in area against us. Police did not listen to my dad just because it was a religious matter and it was against uh, Muhammad. So they put my dad into a prison mm. and, and he had to pay $500, which is about 50,000 Pakistani rupees mm. to... Uh, to get out mm. after my dad offered him. We were bleeding. We had to leave the house. Otherwise, he threatened us that if you don't leave your house in this this time, we're going to burn you with your house, which is which happens till this day that a lot of Christian people get their properties taken. People get killed there. One year ago, there was an incident where for just for 5,000 rupees, a whole Christian, uh, a pregnant Christian woman and her two children and her husband got killed because of that because we can't we christian can't defend ourselves even though if we have no fault if they if they want something from us they can just accuse us for blasphemy and then they win there's no freedom for christians in pakistan mm -hmm. and there's no life for us there and when we left karachi we went to another city called hyderabad it's a uh, hundred kilometers away from four hours away from karachi and we were there for a month and then they found us there because when we 
try to get a house on our rent, we have to give our ID card to a nearest mosque. And they work like an army because they're connected to terrorists. Their mosques, mosques are links. They can find you very easy. They work as an organized uh, military mm. within the country. Mm. And they are very strong. They can gather thousands of thousands of people mm. just because a Christian and we are known to be uh, unclean people, untouchable. Mm. In some places, we can't drink water. And some places we can't go in Pakistan into eat food, into restaurant. It's said there that Christians can come here because they're unclean. Mm. And this is their mindset. Even the young generation, it's all about war. It's all about nuclear bombs. It's all about fighting. Mm. And there's no peace there in their mind. And they're very aggressive people. And because of that, it's very easy for them to find out where we are, where we went. And that way they were able to find us in Hyderabad after we left. Just giving us our ID card, they knew where we were. And we had to rush to get our passports and try to get easiest way for Pakistani citizens to leave country is to go to small countries like Thailand. And we got visa for Thailand. And then we went to Thailand in 2014, April 24th, we arrived in Thailand and applied for asylum in Thailand, where we lived for... uh, nine months and it was a very difficult life for us because of martial law there was no visas we couldn't work and thai immigration is there corrupted people our problem needs to be solved but it didn't get solved it got worse because Mm. thai police was doing crackdown on refugees even though we had visas they knew we were vulnerable to go back to our country they took advantage of that the visas that were 200 dollars, they made it for 800 or thousand dollars And that's a lot of money. Uh, Let me break in and say this, because I don't realize, I don't think that we know here in the West, here in the United States and Canada, uh, the economies are different. So when you talk about $500 for your dad to get out of prison and $800 for a visa, these are outrageous, exorbitant prices. And I I really want our listeners to understand that, um, you know, that's not an a small amount of money here in the United States, but boy, when you talk about Thailand and you talk about Pakistan, because I've sent money to both of those places and, and helped former students, that's a lot of money. So again, I just want to interject and, uh, and help our hearers understand the, uh, the incredible costly, the incredible pressures your family's facing. Uh, so go ahead, Abby. You, you were hit heavily with uh, a visa fees in Thailand. Continue. I remember in SIBC, they played a family, refugee family picture and videos that a lot of Pakistani refugees are stuck in Thailand too. Mm. They, they can't get out. They're out of visas and they're hiding. And because we didn't feel safe in Thailand and we had to leave Thailand. We had to act quick. We couldn't get visa for for U.S., Canada, like that, because wherever you go as a Pakistani to a different embassy, they will call you a terrorist. Oh, your country is from terrorist nation. We can't give you a visa. Sorry. Mm. And so we had to get a visa for South Korea. We prayed, we prayed, and we had to pray a lot before that. We don't want to live here. It's very difficult for us. I didn't go to school there. I developed symptoms of PTSD. Mm. I started getting panic attack because all I did was no social interaction because I was stuck into my house 
at age of 12. I did not have friends. I did not know anybody. And after living there for three months, because so pressurized, I used to end up in ER with high heart rate because we tried to apply visa for France. We got rejected. And I said there was no hope. And in the middle of a taxi, I got a panic. I don't know what it was. It was a heart condition or I don't know what it was because of constant stress for 12 year old. When I end up in hospital, my heart rate was 175 and the doctor kept me overnight. They said it was high level of stress that I had. Mm. And after that, I started developing symptoms of panic attacks. In the middle of a church, I used to get panic attacks because so much stress that I was in because of condition in Thailand, my family decided because their stress as well, they were under a lot of pressure as well. So we had to leave Thailand because we couldn't afford it. And we didn't want to lose our mental peace. We prayed a lot. We asked God for help. to In order to get South Korean visa, we didn't know if we would get it or not. We could have been rejected. And then we had nowhere. And that was the last try we were going to do. And there was no hope because we didn't have more money to live. And then we prayed and God showed us miracle again. And we applied a visa. And then we got the visas. There was like thousands of refugees and we were the only one to get out of there. Mm-hmm. God just opened a door for us. And so you, you came to Korea and, uh, yeah. and now, now tell me, I, I remember you guys being there at least several years. How long was your family in Korea, Abby? So we arrived in uh, Seoul, South Korea in 2nd March, 2015. We were there till 2017, February 24th. Okay. Why did you have to leave? I mean, Korea is a great place. Why? Why leave Korea? I mean, I don't think I don't think a lot of our listeners know just how uh, technologically update, proficient, how strong the economy is. I mean, Korea, South Korea is a wonderful place to leave. Why did you guys leave? We never wanted to leave South Korea. We had to leave South Korea because South Korean government would only allow us to live two years there mm. and in order to get more visas we again we had to get lawyers we had to get uh we had to tell them we had a problem in our country we can't go back but south korean government even though it's a good christian nation they still failed to provide us with security and there was no support we, we worked yes it was a good country we were my dad was able to provide for us there I had a good life there. My symptoms went away with stress. I had friends, wonderful family, Pastor Dan and uh, Susan, where we met in in our church, SIBC family were there. They showed us love when our own own country failed to do so. Mm -hmm. And where I found South Korea and SIBC my safe place, Mm -hmm. as I called it. South Korea was a place for me to actually go out alone on my own. But freedom, that's when I knew what freedom was. My friends from U.S. military, they made me feel safe. They said, any problem will come and help you. They were my superheroes. They helped me feel safe again. And they were there for me. Pastor Dan and his son was there for me. Susan, everybody was there for me. And it made me feel like they're my family, even though we don't have blood relationship. And But you're there for us. And that's the beautiful relationship we have. We don't want to leave South Korea, but we, we couldn't afford it. We, uh, As Pastor Dan know, we tried very hard. Susan went with us to Canadian consulate. They didn't have embassy there. We went to an uh, Australian place. They didn't give it. Jeff Kendall, uh, the church speaker, sometimes church elder, he tried to help us with that. He 
provided with like sponsorship there, it didn't work out. We tried uh, America, it didn't work out and nothing ever worked out. And then at the end, God opened a way, even though it didn't seem to look like a way, we thought like we were going to be in prison there. South Korea was a place, I, I remember I was crying, I was crying and crying and crying when I was leaving. I didn't want to go. That was, mm. I, I felt hopeless, helpless. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say. I was just like, like my whole world came crashing down. And then God, he brought us to Nepal. Mm. Well, yes. one good thing about Korea, and I can speak to this, you mentioned the church and the military. We had a lot of military. We had, oh, at any one time, 20 to 25 different nationalities. We really were red and yellow, black and white. Uh, all precious in his sight, but that I think the thing that blessed me so much in our international church, and and you spoke of it, is is the family. Uh, we were family. Uh, Jesus was once, uh, uh, as he was teaching his family, his own family, along with his mother and brothers, gathered outside and were asking for him to come out, and and they said, "Your family's here." And he looked around and he said, "You know." who is my family? And, and then he looked at those gathered around and said, you are our family. And so uh, I think it's important to note that what happened in Korea was the beginning of what we hope is going to be uh, God's answer to your prayer. So at this point, uh, let me mention, obviously, one of the best things that happened to you was you met uh, Suzanne there and Rick. So, Suzanne, I want to bring you in at this point. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got connected with the Parvez family and uh, what have you been doing now for the last several years to help them out? Well, um, while we were in Korea, um, we actually were taking mission trips to India uh, to work with the ministry in India um, called ASHA Mission. And uh, so when I saw them in church and we both arrived in Korea around the same time and we both left Korea around the same time, of course, the way that um, the traditional dress that um, Alfreda was wearing is very similar to Indian. So I went up to talk to her and then she told me that they were from Pakistan. So we got together, we invited them over to our home and we had many meetings, dinners, suppers, as you mentioned, Alfreda's wonderful cooking. And we started to hear their story. It was really heartbreaking to see, you know, what they had gone through and the toll it had taken on them. And the one thing that really stood out to me was this is when we were getting ready to leave. And I remember George looking at me and at that time, Abby was 15 and he said, Suzanne, you and Rick are going back to Canada. Please take Abby with you. He said, I'm older. He said, we've lived our life. We can die, but we want our son to have an education. We want him to have a life. Will you take him back to Canada? Mm. It was just so heartbreaking to, to hear that and to know this man's desperation for his son. And I didn't feel right, though we could have taken Abby and that wouldn't have been a problem in terms of us taking Abby and giving him a home, no problem. But I knew that for George and Alfreda, this is their only son, you know, and to separate a mom from her child, I just knew as a mom, I would never fare well with that. And I said, I listen, I said, I can't take him from you. 
But what I will do is I will work to bring you guys to Canada. Mm. I will do whatever it takes to get you guys to Canada so you can have a real home, that you can have a safe place to live, and that Abby can get an education, and that you can live a life without being in fear all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we came back to Canada. I told my family about it. Um, my family right away said, Mom, we need to do this. Let's do this. And so began the whole journey of finding out what it would take in order to bring them to Canada. And the first part of that was they needed to get refugee status. Mm. And so the interesting thing was, and I really believe God was a part of um, why they went to Nepal, was because... I had called the UN office and I had asked them, what countries do you actually have an office in? Mm. And they wouldn't tell me. And I said, well, they said, you have to find out for yourself. And I said, well, how do we find out? And they said, I guess you're going to have to travel or do research to figure out which country we actually have an office in. I was talking to somebody in uh, Switzerland at the time. And I just was like, Lord, like there's no money to just, kind of hop on planes and go check out places. And George had really felt that they were to go to Nepal. And when they got to Nepal, they found out that there was an office, a UN office there. Mm. And so that was a real answer to prayer. Yeah. And then they were able to begin the process of getting the official UN status. Mm. When I came to Canada and I found out what the requirements were, one of the major requirements was that they had to have this UN mm. official status. Mm -hmm. And, and so, I guess, Su Susie, just to interrupt you, that UN sure. status, is that a way of saying this family is legitimate? Uh, does it help with the issues of, uh, oh, are these terrorists? Are they, uh, tell me, why is that so important? Yeah, exactly. For all those reasons, they do a thorough investigation. So they brought the whole family in, they interviewed each person independently, and then they researched their story. They go and investigate their story. And that whole process took about three years before they came back with all the details and checked it out and said, this is a legitimate claim. This is real. This is a real refugee family and we can give them official status. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me what happened next. Once, once they're in Nepal, there's an answer to prayer. They get the UN status. Take us down the next several steps. Okay. So in the meantime, we had, uh, we had a friend here in Canada who had helped other refugee families. And so she was very willing to be involved, um, a beautiful lady by the name of Iris, and so her and I and um, another family from Pakistan, Christian family that had come to Canada and they are working here as missionaries in Canada to the Muslims, interestingly, and have a wonderful ministry. So we got together, the five of us, and then together we started to work on the actual paperwork of what do we need, how do we do it, and it was all a, a matter of waiting on this official UN document, which finally came through 
this year. And so right away we had the paperwork ready and we just started immediately on that paperwork. So there are requirements by the government of Canada and there's different ways refugees come into Canada. In our situation, we didn't have a church behind us, but we did have a school. One of the things that I was able to help Abby with was once we came back to Canada, I knew how important education was to George and Alfreda. So I contacted a distance education school in Canada called Hope Christian. And I talked with the principal there, Dale, and I explained the situation. And he said, let me talk with my board, but I believe that we'll take Abby on as a missionary and start working on his education. Mm. And so they did. And so Abby has been very fortunate to be having this um, amazing group of teachers, this amazing school that have really supported him. He's built incredible relationships with his teachers who all are just really thrilled to be a part of this. And so with the school, with the people, our friends, we were able to form a plan of needing to raise um, funds for the requirements. So our particular process is called group of five sponsorships. So you need five sponsors that are willing to then take this family and sponsor them to come to Canada. Mm. And there's a certain amount of money that's required. Okay. So let's talk about that because I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. And and that's why I've got you guys here today. I, I have a personal relationship and feeling uh, toward this family. Many others from our church and soul do. We're in the process of raising money. I know you are. You set up a fundraiser. Tell us about that. I think it's on GoFundMe. Just help us to understand a little bit about what it's going to take uh, to get the Parvez family to Canada. Yes. As you know, with the pandemic going on, the original ideas we had of raising money uh, were not possible. And we just basically came to the conclusion that the only way we could do this was through a GoFundMe. And it's turned out to be a huge blessing. Mm. And so the actual numbers that the government required were for a family of three were just under 27,000 Canadian. And so we had a generous donation given to us to kickstart it. And that leaving us with needing to raise us just under 17,000. And so we started this GoFundMe and I can tell you, I don't think I know really any people that have donated on this page. It's just been incredible. Mm -hmm. And within a month and a half, we had raised that amount of money that was required by the government. Mm -hmm. And so just to clarify, because the, the GoFundMe page is still open and I do explain on it. The government requires that there is this set amount of 27,000 in the bank held Mm. in trust. Mm. So we have two trustees, the lady Iris that I told you about and my husband Rick. And so both of them are the trustees of this money and no money can come out of that account without both signatures. Mm. So that money is to be used for housing and basically food 
and maybe some little incidentals, but essentially that's what the money is for. But obviously that's not enough money to live on. If you just think of your own costs, uh, $27,000 for a year is is not going to go very far. And so the reality is then when you get the paperwork from the government, they help you look at all the different things that the family's going to need. Um, furniture, which some can be donated, and we've already had, you know, good donations coming in towards that. But there's things like um, clothing. Obviously, when they come to Canada, they're going to need winter clothing here in northern Alberta. And, and so it goes down a whole list of things that are going to be needed. And when you add that all up, okay. so there's about another 13000 that we need to raise to show that they will be able to take care of themselves financially for that first year. And the requirement is only for the first year with the understanding that the five sponsors are going to help them settle in their community. They're going to help them find jobs or ways of being able to take care of themselves, learn English. Um, Abby's English, as you can tell, is excellent. Mm -hmm. He's actually quite brilliant in languages. Mm -hmm. I think he speaks four or five languages now, Mm -hmm. Uh, Korean, Nepal, um, uh, Thai, English, so he's doing very good in languages. Yeah, one of, one of the of blessings course. of traveling. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, his parents, however, are going to need English classes. So that first year is really that there's no financial stress on them. They're able to get counseling or help or mm-hmm. language, etc. And then at the end of that year, the sponsors have helped them that they're able to now stand on their own mm-hmm. and be able to manage you know, their life and, and, and move forward. So let me make sure I understand this and our listeners do. We, we have raised how much to this point? Have you, have you actually raised? We have raised almost 17,000 on the GoFundMe. Plus we had a generous donation of 10,000. So we have the Mm 27,000, which allows us now to send all the paperwork into the government. Okay. And this week, we are sending off a package to the government literally this week. Okay. So that's you need, step one. Okay. And the step two, if I understood correctly, you need about another 13000 in order yes. to help them through that first year with clothing, furniture, English classes, all these things they're going to need. Yes. There's another 13000 that we need to raise. So if all works out uh, and the money is raised, you can go ahead and bring the family over and begin the process of uh, Abby and his parents settling in a permanent home in a free country. Let's talk about um, how they can give, what they need to do. And I know we're going to post along with this interview, a specific place they can click on, go to, but tell us a little bit about how they can give. And again, we know we've got two trustees, so the money is safe. It's secure. This is legitimate. Uh, Susie, if I wanted to give, tell me what I should do. If you go to the GoFundMe page, uh, you can type in, please help bring the Pervaz family to Canada. Okay, and spell that. P-E-R-V-A-I-Z. Okay. Yes. And then you can read their story. And I've given an update there as well. 
So everything is on that page. Awesome. And again, as I mentioned, we're going to put along with this, those of you who've clicked on this interview, you'll also see below the little picture there, the family that we put where you can click on and go specifically to the GoFundMe page so you can give. I I want to thank the two of you for for being on today. I just feel like God's going to do some great things. Uh, Chances are we'll have you back at some other time, but but we'll see. Right now, I think our goal is to get this extra 13000 and to help bring the Parvez family to uh, Canada. Uh, today, as we, uh, as we sign off, uh, I'm going to simply say uh, to both of you, again, thank you. God bless you. And for our listeners, this is what Church on the Edge is all about. Our goal here is to literally reach out to the ends of the earth, to live like Jesus lived on the edge with our money, our finances, and helping others, and to see the body of Christ become what it can be through the faithful commitment of people just like you and me. Again, thanks to to the two of you for joining us today, and uh, God bless you. This has been Church on the Edge with Dan Armistead, rethinking what church is and what church should be. If you like this episode, please leave a review at your preferred podcast provider, and you can find out more about this podcast as well as my articles, coming books, and more at danarmistead.com. And remember, it's all about Jesus and following Him as His church on the edge.